From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. And I thought, well, you know, what, what do I know about? I was like, oh, I know about metallurgy. And I often see things where they're either not con- considering the materials aspect of things or um, or people have often have wrong ideas about things. Uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to start talking about some of these things on a regular basis and try to explain the science, the physics, the chemistry behind, like there are reasons these things work a given way, right? It, I mean, we may not understand all the science, but there's certainly a lot that we do understand. That was Sarah Jordan. Sarah is a metallurgical engineer and material scientist who is passionate about solving problems, process improvement, and process efficiency. She's worked in metal additive manufacturing since 2015. Sarah's currently focused on developing a new hybrid process called additive manufacturing evaporative casting at her company school. The goal is a toolingless process that gives large precision, complex shapes, known properties, 100 times faster speeds, and a system that is 90% cheaper. They also have a couple other materials technologies they're working on to commercialize, including lightweighting and surface hardening. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us after I biffed the, <laughs> the scheduling last week, but um, I'm excited for, for our conversation today, and uh, I think we've got a lot of ground to cover. So um, I like to start out all of these conversations with just getting a sense of the person and um, kind of where, where you came from. So where'd you grow up? What, what was kind of your, your early story like before you kind of moved into added manufacturing engineering? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, I, I guess I was on your show a while ago talking about my prior employer, Fabrisonic, but yeah. Um, so I grew up, um, well, I moved several times when I was little and then when I was about 10, we moved to Southeast Ohio, Athens, uh, which is a college town where Ohio University is. So I th- think that's what keeps me kind of a, a different kind of background growing up in a college town than a lot of places. Because even though it was small, there were a lot of, um, you know, things that they do for the kids from the university, right? All these different programs for, you know, art and engineering and things like that, that I think kind of foster creativity and I think in the, in the, you know, kind of meandering way to help lead to where I am an additive now. Awesome. And what, as you were kind of growing, growing up and kind of thinking about kind of at least academic track, you want to kind of take us through some of those, those early decisions. Like, was there something that kind of particularly drew you to metallurgy working with kind of building stuff? Was there any like spark of inspiration? Well, I originally, like, I think when I was in high school, I, I'm also very interested in, like, history and things like that, but there's also a practical side of me. My dad is a ceramics engineer, which is kind of under the materials engineering umbrella, so when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but that was something I was very familiar with, and I was like, well, that sounds interesting. I'd grown up visiting glass and ceramic factories, which I don't think is like a normal thing. I can remember like in high school going to visit where the, how they make fiberglass insulation and just all kinds of 
things like that. Uh, so when I got to Ohio State, I was, well, I'll, I'll try this ceramic engineering thing. And I started doing that. And it's in, it was at the time, the, there was a materials engineering department and they had three majors, materials, ceramics, and metallurgy. Um, so it was in the ceramics. Actually, until I was uh, the start of my senior year, I was actually originally going to be a ceramist. But I ended up changing because uh, one, course scheduling, and then also all my work experience ended up being in metals. So I was like, this doesn't make sense to go, be, you know, tried to graduate with no work experience when I, like, I've worked in foundries and steel mills. So I ended up changing over to the, to the metal side. And so one of the things that I think you're really awesome at, and we'll talk about this later in the conversation, is explaining kind of material science concepts. You have this awesome LinkedIn kind of uh, snippet you do kind of weekly now on, on metallurgy. But for those who are listening who may not be familiar with some of the terms, like, can you kind of describe what a like what's what does it mean to be a ceramics engineer i mean i know you didn't kind of focus on that ultimately but kind of from a material science perspective what do you mean when you say ceramics what what's kind of the an easy way for people to remember that yeah so i guess ceramics is more focused on oxide materials um my dad always described it as uh inorganic non-metallic they basically just defined it by what it was not. So it wasn't polymers and it wasn't metals, which isn't necessarily the best description, but it ends up being all these materials that are very complicated, whether it's um, like silica with, with it's like, you know, goes into like glass and all kinds of um, more complicated ceramics materials. Um, there's kind of like the traditional ceramics you know, pottery, right, goes back thousands of years. I don't know when glass got invented, but um, but then there's like all kinds of modern things, right? Computer chips and things like that that are, are based on ceramic systems. Um, so, but yeah, thanks for bringing up my, yeah, my new thing, Metallurgy Monday, trying to, trying to explain that. I think partly because I see a lot of things that I, like, annoy me because they're like factually wrong. Um, and it's clear that like a lot of people have no exposure to that. Um, I guess... The one thing that I kind of look at with whether it's ceramics or materials or metallurgy, a person tends to be very broad in the engineering fields, but then very deep in like that area. So we learn about, you know, the mechanical aspects or the electrical aspects or you know, what's happening chemically and all, and all kinds of things like that. Um, but it's all focused on a given type of system. Yeah. It's so funny these days when like we go to these additive events and <clears throat> you're in a room and uh, a lot of the technical talks, there's five or 10 other materials engineers in the space. Like it seems like there's such a density of, of people that are kind of coming from a materials background in working in, in additive now, but with, with kind of the work you're doing, kind of jump into the, the, the metallurgy Mondays is like, there's, you almost take it for granted if you come from materials background of like the nuances of how, some of the terminology, some of the conceptual understanding of like, what does it mean to be a metal and what are phase diagrams and, and all of this stuff that you, you study in, in school, but then as you get to apply it in everyday manufacturing, it's, it's something that um, is certainly important, but to understand and, 
and apply, but then also how to communicate that effectively and, and what are the implications ultimately of, of okay, so what, what does it mean to have this as a phase diagram and, or, or other term? Yeah, and I don't know what people learn at other universities. I know at Ohio State, almost all the engineers, at least at that time, had to take a very, a, a one quarter long, so like 10 week, so maybe 30 classes, very introductory level materials class, but it was it was a very broad survey and they didn't really go into like any depth. So they'd be like, this is a you know stress strain curve. This is how you read them. And it was very, very basic. And I, I think a lot of engineers either they maybe they never even had that, or if they did, they don't remember or can connect the knots between, you know, the designs that they're doing and things like that. So um, yeah, and I, I do agree that there are definitely often a lot of materials people, which has not been my experience in a lot of places. There are often none in the room. <laughs> and what? So I mean, we'll we'll dig into the managed, or the um, metallurgy Monday. So what was the the idea? Like, what was kind of the spark for that? And and what's your aim aim with it? If if people <laughs> haven't checked it out, I mean, uh, kind of follow you on LinkedIn, and and you've got these awesome kind of kind of threads on, um, on different concepts. So you want to describe it a little bit more? Yeah, pretty much just the idea. Well, somebody was putting out manuscript Monday, which seemed like a good idea to kind of have some kind of regular cadence on a, on a given topic. And I thought, well, you know, what, what do I know about? It? I was like, Oh, I know about metallurgy. And I often see things where they're either not con- considering the materials aspect of things or, um, or people have often have wrong ideas about things. Uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to start talking about some of these things on a regular basis and try to explain the science, the physics, the chemistry behind, like there are reasons these things work a given way, right? It, I mean, we may not understand all the science, but there's certainly a lot that we do understand. Um, so just trying to break it down for you know, because it's my only, it might be like half a page, right, that I type up. So it's, it's not going into depth. It's very, you know, either one-on-one level or even lower, like somebody who, you know, they don't even necessarily have to be an engineer to understand like some of these basics. Although I found like I, I write about something and then it like people ask a question and now it like opens. I was like, oh, well, that could be like five other posts and these other questions because it's like I did like I recently did oh what's a phase well that's because that's like very basic thing that people in our field take for granted um, but it's not actually easy to define in a you know easy to understand way we we know it when we see it <laughs> but what does it really mean and um because somebody was like well what's, what is, what is, what are these other terms like but if you don't understand the definitions it's very hard to understand any other parts of it. For sure. And it makes it um, uh, like the, the ability to go into detail on like, okay, how much, especially from an end user side or someone getting into the, the, the new technology that you see all these hype stories about, Hey, we could do this 10 times faster or our parts are stronger and we can do it cheaper. And so having that grounding of, of material science, you can start to understand, okay, where's the marketing end and where does the science start and what's right. that, what's that actual right, like, gradient look like? 
Right. Like one, one, I don't know, I guess discussion I had gotten in was there are people saying that, you know, powder bed stuff is 6061 aluminum. And I'm like, well, that's not true because 6061 aluminum has to be rot. Like that's the definition of that, like nomenclature and something that's just welded together. Like, how is it rot? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might be the chemistry, but um, yeah, I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> And so kind of going back to your career, career story, kind of your, are at Ohio state, kind of what was your first step after kind of the, the university? What, what did you want to kind of go into industry? Was that kind of your, your thinking at the time? Yeah, I, after school, I ended up um, working in founder, the foundry industry. I did, uh, I spent some time at a startup foundry do, as they're, CMM programmer doing key path layouts. And I also did a bunch of work with quality. A lot of my background has been in quality. So I kind of started there in quality. They they were working towards getting ISO. Um, Well, actually, I think at the time it was QS 9000, something like that. You know, this was like 20 years ago, whatever the numbers and systems were back then. Um, So that's kind of what I started at. Uh, and then at some point, I decided to go back to grad school at Ohio State. And I still wanted a project that was practical and very industry-oriented. I was not so much into the super theoretical, although at this point, I was kind of kicking myself. because at the, So when I chose my project, I kind of had two that I was looking at. One was the one I did, which had to do with uh, modeling uh, steel solidification and fluid flow and things like that. And the one I didn't was actually related to the lens process. Um, and that was like 20 years or no more than that. Yeah. Like about over 20 years ago. And I'm like, hmm, maybe that would have been a better, <laughs> who knows where I'd be though, if I had gotten, a, you know, done, you know, master's or PhD in lens 20 years ago. So you threw out some terms when you were describing kind of one of your first jobs on kind of the CMM side and, and PPAP. So for kind of those who aren't su- super familiar with the quality side, what, what does that mean? Um, for those yeah. So CMM is a coordinate measuring machine. It's basically a device that uh, kind of has a probe and it knows where it is to lead space. So you can figure out all the dimensions and whether or not something is meeting the dimensional requirements. If it's, the tolerances are wherever it's supposed to be. Uh, they, they're much more, at the time, the one we had was, you know, modern for its time, but it was very automated. It, it was very manual. Nowadays, they're basically robotic once you set it up. Um, PPAP, hmm, it's an automotive term. What does it say? It's like pre-production approval process or something like that. Yeah. It's, uh, I, might have got some I forget exactly what it means, but I know that <laughs> you know when but, you see it. It's an yeah, <laughs> but it's basically doing all these things to prove out your process uh, that it's repeatable, and you know that you're giving the customer what the customer needs. Um, it's to me very automotive focused. There are different kinds of processes and how they're they're kind of similar, but they're different if you're talking about aerospace. Did you like working in kind of the manufacturing, the foundry setting? Yeah, I, I like making things, I guess, at the end of the day. 
I've had jobs where it was more like a numbers type job. And I have definitely more of the hands-on, um, even grad school, like the pro- the process, the project I did do was very modeling and sitting in front of a computer all day. And that, that wasn't for me. <laughs> I can appreciate people who do, you know, finite element and CFD modeling, which CFD is uh, computational fluid dynamics. Uh, so I, I appreciate those. I think they're important, but not for me. <laughs> yeah. And when was your first introduction to, to additive manufacturing? When did you first see it? Hmm. Well, like I was exposed to it, right. When I decided not to do this, oh, right, yeah, like yeah. I saw this machine and at the time I was like, wait, why would you blow up metal and then weld it back together? Like that didn't make sense to me <laughs> coming from like a foundry background. But, um, and then I guess I the second thing I remember seeing, and this must've been, I don't know, more than 10 years ago, maybe 15 years, there was a thing they sold on the, the Sky Mall catalog on airplanes. Do you, I don't even yeah, know if yeah. that's still a thing, but they had this pen where you could like, like 3D print in space from this polymer pen. And the then even at the time- right? I, The doodler, hmm? was that what it was I called? I don't know what it was called, but I was, it, it was just like, what, why, why would you want a three, di- three-dimensionally, right? Like- by hand like that didn't make sense to me but then later i was like eventually saw the ones where they were like kind of more like a cnc i was like oh i get it i can see how this is useful but, but at the, when the hand one i was like my hand's not good at drawing on paper <laughs> yeah so i, I uh, i'm not sure when i started seeing these uh more desktop hobbyist ones that came out but yeah maybe uh, eight, 10 years ago, they started to become a little bit more prevalent. Now they're at like micro center for like 180 bucks or something. For sure. And so you finish your kind of graduate project. What was next on your career trajectory? Did you go right into, was it that kind of the next step to additive or were there a few more steps? And- oh yeah. So after I got my um, master's degree at Ohio State, I actually did go, I went to um, Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts. I was going to originally get a PhD there in surface metrology, but a couple of things. One, I wasn't super interested in what I was doing. And then my husband's job got moved um, to Indiana. So I ended up kind of putting that on hold at the time and, and stopping it. I'm actually back there now because my advisor's like, you're doing research just finished the dissertation. So I'm kind of going back and finishing that with the stuff, the work that I'm doing now and not, it's a little bit related to surface metrology, but not so much. It's more focused on the additive um, things that we're doing now. Um, And then after that, that, that's where at that point I went out to industry for, for a while. And so you spent some time, I think we met when you were still at Fabrisonic. So that was kind of in, in that uh, kind of the ultrasonic additive um, kind of metal fabrication. And what did, what were you doing there? What was kind of your day-to-day kind of work like? Yeah. So in some ways, my job at some point, I, I actually got an MBA. So I 
as my husband said, I went over to the dark side, um, a little less focused on. Is he an engineer as well? He's also a metallurgist, exactly. (laughs) And he's much more like technical, uh, like deep, as opposed to like, I'm more broad and over a lot of other different processes. But um, so after that MBA, I got into marketing a lot more. So at Fabrisonic, my role was, uh, my title was product manager, and a lot of it was around um, trying to find what were the applicable market niches and, and the use cases for our technology, a lot of it, talking to customers, all, all kinds of things on, on that end of things. Like they have a product that's really good with copper and aluminum. So there's a lot of like electrical type uses with electric vehicles. So a lot of my job was like, okay, in-depth understanding, say the electric vehicle and the battery markets and things of that sort um, to understand how to, you know, position ourselves, communicate, you know, their value proposition. Um, And then a lot of that job was also because they are doing R&D, trying to um, write proposals such as, for um, the SBIR um, or other types of government funding mechanisms. So I did also did a lot of that. Okay. And you were super helpful in helping me do that for the first time. And so it was a good, uh, um, awesome help. And just seeing what people have done in industry on, on along those lines, we had never done it before. And, I think, I think, again, I had saw one of your kind of LinkedIn posts that like, Hey, like if anyone's interested in um, talking about SBIR, there's this America makes event coming up, like come find me. And so I hunted hunted you down (laughs) at an MMX and and we spoke (laughs) for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I'm always happy to talk about people. There's these things called zipper mills um, that they just exist almost to like, do like these SBIR projects and they don't necessarily work with it. And I'm definitely all about like, you know, you want new blood, you want people who are going to do a project, but then it has some commercial intent. Like that's the point. So I think getting other people to understand that process is really important. And so um, you spent a number of, or uh, some good time there. Um, do you want to explain kind of what, um, kind of your, your new company is and, and kind of what, uh, what you're doing on that front? Yeah. So, um, I co-founded a startup uh, called schooled LLC and we have, well, how do I want to say it? So, so there's some additive stuff that we were working on. I guess that's the focus of this, of this uh, podcast. So we are basically trying to merge, um, 3D printing with a process called lost foam casting, which is a faster form of investment casting. I have um, actually worked uh, at a prior startup related to lost foam casting. And then uh, my business partner and I had co-founded a startup in that space actually in 2009, which was not a great time to have a metals company at all, let alone a startup. And that was the great recession. Um, but we had developed some really good technology at that company, actually both of those prior companies. So um, school kind of is 
we're focused on this additive technology and further developing it, but we also have these other technologies that we're working to commercialize um, because they're farther along in the TRL level, right? Some of these um, processes aren't currently commercialized, but like we've sold commercial products in the, in the past. Um, so, so that's kind of like what school's focused on. Um, we had had one SBIR related to our thin wall buckle iron uh, technology, which is a, a lightweighting material. And then there's just a, a number of other things that we have going on. And so what is it like kind of coming back to the kind of startup space? I mean, you, you had a company, you kind of did, did some of this work a number of years ago, both like not only from the technical side, but like you've had a number of years in between where you've been in industry, you've kind of seen what works, what doesn't, like what, what have you learned this time around that you're kind of trying to apply in terms of running your own company, running in a business and, and kind of make it, mm. get it off the ground? Interesting question. So, so, so I guess I have two comments. One, um, having gone from like having my own startup and then back to like big Fortune 500 company, I kind of feel in some ways that makes it very difficult to deal with those kind of cultures because you're used to a much faster pace where it's easier to make decisions. Um, in some ways, I think having a startup or being in a startup kind of ruins you for those kinds of companies. Cause you, like, it was very hard for me to be patient um, and, and deal with the cultures at those kinds of companies. On the other hand, I also think that understanding how those companies work has also been very useful to what we're doing now. Um, so I worked for seven years at Emerson, which is a very large company. So I understand how their you know, supply chain processes, purchasing, how their engineering systems work. Um, and I think that is critical to being able to sell things to them that will help them. I don't know that every company works exactly like Emerson. I'm sure they're all got their own unique flavors. But I think if you're trying to, you know, provide something to a really big company, that understanding how those companies are likely to be operating, kind of the bureaucracies that exist in them, how it's easy for one person to veto something because maybe there's 20 people that have to buy into something. I think, I think that's been very helpful in this uh, latest iteration of entrepreneurship is to have that kind of background experience. Sure. And would the idea for a lot of the products you're designing now and your systems and, and processes, would, would it be kind of a B2B type of, of sale that you'd be working on or kind of that sort of business model where you have to directly apply it then and say, okay, like this is a company I want to sell to, but here's the five layers of people that I need to, to convince before that gets done. So, so it kind of depends, which I know is a metallurgy answer. I mean, so some of what we're, we're working on are things that's like, okay, we're just going to make say a replacement part. And so then it's not necessarily, it's still likely to be B2B, but it could be B2C or, or B2G like business to consumer or business to government as well, depending on, you know, who needs a replacement part. So um, repla rapid replacements, I think, is one aspect of what we're looking at. So then it could just be all kinds of use cases. Um, but, and this is very true for additive, it's true for like 
the out of loss film we're doing as well as just like regular loss film technology is a lot of times you have to get these things redesigned to make the best uh, use of the technology, right? Like you could just make a regular say casting and just convert like an existing casting to a loss film cast. You can do that, um, but it's going to cost more and you're not using the benefits of the process. So why would you do, like, why would you do that? Uh, it's that when you're trying to change the design, well, that takes a whole lot more in these companies. And, and that's where we're, we're generally trying to, to, to be. And I think that's where most of the additive folks are as well. Um, and that those are definitely like, you're going up against big cultures that aren't designed to change rapidly. Um, and it's often very challenging, I think, because because of how those big companies are. Yeah, Don, oh, I had Don Godfrey on uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and his his comment was, I think he had read something in a Ford lunchroom or something that said, was it, "Culture eats technology for breakfast," and certainly for <laughs> I've I've certainly seen that, and and that. Uh, like even now you get like some of these companies that have maybe tried additive once and like had a bad taste in their mouth. So like throwing out the buzzwords again to, to somebody to try and convince them to, to, to understand a new technology or kind of bring something in that um, they may have seen five, 10 years ago that wasn't ready. Um, it's, it's an uphill battle. Certainly. I've never heard that quote, but that's a great quote. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, from my experience, what happens is if you're trying to get something redesigned, well, it's like, you need a bunch of people to okay that first of all, but then often no one owns a new thing, but people own the old thing, right? So if you're trying to, let's say you're trying to consolidate parts, each one of those parts has an, an engineering owner. Each one of those parts has a purchasing owner, right? And there's the new future redesign part has no owner sometimes. So it's like, you know, these 10 people can say no, but you don't necessarily have a person pushing it to get this redesign thing. And even if you, even if you do have somebody who's like, all right, they're appointed the new designs owner, like they're one person against this whole bunch of other people who can say no. And often they will say no, because it's like, well, you're, you're playing in their, you know, sandbox and they don't necessarily want to give up one of their parts. And I mean, there's all kinds of these like reasons that things really happen. Like there's reasons people say things happen, but there's the reasons things really happen. It's because like people don't want to like lose control over what's their domain. Sure. And the other thing that I've seen a lot too, especially recently is this ability to people will play along and say, Oh yeah, I'm really interested in that technology. Like let's test it and prove it out. But like, as, as you probably know more than me with like, you can test and test and test and have new requirements and come up with these different types of, of quality assessments for parts that you, you can just extend that almost infinitely. Right. Where again, it's just saying like, okay, no one's really willing to make a decision. We're just going to get more testing. And so like you can, you get to a point where you're just, it's been a year and a half. You just done a million tensile bars or part geometries. And it's never enough for some people because they don't want to necessarily own the risk or own the, 
the ability for failure if it if it does happen, right? Yeah, and I also think that's a good excuse if you're if you really want to say no, but you don't want to come out and just be yes. saying yeah. no. It's easy to just keep moving the goalposts, right? That oh, well, you did well in those first thirty samples. Okay, well, now we're going to change what the requirement is, as opposed to set being like upfront with what some of the things are. I mean, if you if you're upfront and you're like, look, you need to be in the MMPDS, you know, volume two handbook, and that's going to take. Here's the list of tests. I mean, okay, maybe that is the requirement, then just be clear that that's what's going to take. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's certainly an interesting dynamic. And and so like how do you find what kind of what's your average day like now that you you're you're doing a PhD, you're running a company? Like how do you how do you find time to sleep? <laughs> well, the PhD is mainly doing things that I would already be like the experiment part is stuff that I would be doing okay. already. Uh, it's more like getting the discipline to do like the lit review and some, some of those, the paperwork side of things. So, so there the key is just like, re, like blocking some time on my calendar every week, like all right, all right, these whatever four hours are, are going to be working on that. Um, I don't think there's a typical day when you have a, a startup um, or your own small company. I mean, you're, you're responsible for everything, right? Whether it's the accounting side or HR issues or whatever, um, you know, talking to customers. So it's like all kinds of, all kinds of different things we have going on right now. Um, so, so this main focus is this additive casting new process. Um, we just got, um, so we've been doing all these tests, partnering with other existing foundries. So we'll do the mold part and then um, taking the molds to other people to pour for the trials. And we're actually in the process of installing um, a very large, well, medium large, I guess, aluminum furnace, 900 pounds. So that, that translates to about 2,700 pound um, iron or steel furnace. So, so it's, it's good size. Um, so we're installing that here. It's a it arrived last week, so we'll be installing it over the course of the next month or so, um, which will allow us to make a lot of uh, more more R and D trials, and then also like I want to make a bunch of demonstration parts. Um, I think it helps people like, understand what the process capabilities are. And so what's the, I guess I did two questions for that. So first one is like, so you have um, kind of your own kind of warehouse lab space that you're doing all this, this work in. Yeah. So, so we've moved several times in the course of uh, the company uh, where we are right now. Yeah. We're, we are partnering with a, there's a logistics company um, that we originally were just using their stuff space as warehouse space. And now we're kind of taking a corner of their, their building for installing this equipment. Um, I'm not sure how long we'll be in that space, but at least for what we're doing now, that's adequate. We we actually own um, three induction furnaces, but the amount of power that those take is a lot. Um, and it's actually like a very small number of um, locations that actually have sufficient electricity for us to be in, but eventually we to install those, um, but we need to have sufficient demand to, um, it's like a chicken and the egg thing, right? But 
Um, we have to have enough demand to, to justify putting, installing those furnaces in uh, because like there's peak power charges. It's like 10 grand if I turn those furnaces on, like, like the second I turn them on. That's down, the, that's down the line. How do you think about that in terms of, I mean, everyone's concerned about energy and sustainability now. Is there, are there workarounds that you have to think about in terms of like, are we just going to operate at three in the morning so that we don't pay these crazy fees or, um, or is that not matter as much? I mean, $10,000 is expensive, right? No matter what you're doing, but like. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that depends on where you're just physically located. Uh, at least when we talk to the power places here in Ohio, they're, they don't really give you a discount for melting at night. I think, you know, things we're looking at is looking, is looking towards moving to places that do have, um, you know, like hydropower, things like that. Um, we'll see where it goes. I guess the way I look at it from, um, you know, my own rationale, <laughs> is these processes are significantly greener than the alternatives, sure. um, you know, because most metal at some point is cast, whether it's a forging um, or rock, uh, bar stock, whatever, it's been melted and cast at some point, even if it then undergoes all kinds of additional process steps. I mean, even powder is, it's cast, right? It's molten at some point and then they spray water into it to make it into powder. Um, so in my opinion, going directly from casting to your finished component is like the most efficient way to make a part. Right. Awesome. And so one other thing, kind of a divert, like well, tangent uh, I've seen on, on your LinkedIn is you're also involved in Toastmasters. So I've always been curious kind of what, what is that and, and kind of what, how does it work and, and what do you do for the organization? Oh yeah, Toastmasters. So Toastmasters is a organization that helps improve public speaking. It, it could be like this kind of thing, dealing with an interview, or it could be getting up and giving a presentation. I definitely encourage like, engineers to to get practice in that. I think most engineers tend to either be introverts or shy, uh, or not necessarily the greatest public speakers. So I got involved in it when I worked at Emerson. They actually had a company club that met, I, can't remember, I think they met every Wednesday, maybe it was every other Wednesday, I can't remember, but um, so it was to, it's to, they have a whole system of how to practice uh, public speaking and get feedback. It's very useful, I think, to get better at it just by repetition practice. It eventually gets you over your fear of public speaking. I was a president of our club, at least till the end of this month, and then I pass the baton on to somebody else. They, they, they're also very big on developing leadership skills. So they have rules that like, you can only be the president for a year and it's to encourage everybody to step up and to be an officer. Maybe you don't want to be the president. Maybe you're just the secretary or the treasurer or something, but they, they're very big on developing leadership skills as well as speaking skills. I definitely encourage people to check it out. And so what are some of the kind of the basics when it comes to that? Is it just, is it kind of, you have a platform and opportunity for someone to, to listen to you and then give you feedback on, on it or, or kind of what's, do you, do you also have like practice yeah, so, drills or something? I don't know that that's probably the wrong word, but. Yeah. So they, they have a couple of things that they, so they have this um, 
Well, it used to be a book, but that's now like online and a multimedia thing called Pathways that gives you training and tips and things to think about and practice. And then each meeting has a section where there are prepared speeches. So if you're doing your pathway, you'll periodically do one of these prepared speeches. And then there are people who give, who are called evaluators, they give feedback on that speech. So they're, they're kind of doing an impromptu speech in reaction to what you just said. And um, they might talk about, you know, what your speech made them think about, but they might also be like, okay, you need to work on not saying um all the time or different tips of things that they notice. Maybe, maybe you just stand really rigid and, you know, it's very clear that you're freaking out. Um, I don't know. They'll, they'll give, what they see as feedback. And then the other part of Testmasters meeting, which when I first was exposed to it, I was like, oh, this is terrible. I'm never going to do this, is they have something called table topics. The table topics are totally unplanned things. There's somebody who's the table topics master and they have something that's supposed to prompt, like as an impromptu speaking um, thing where you're, they give you some kind of prompt and you're, you're supposed to talk from one to two minutes on that prompt. And that's actually really good practice for a lot of things like interviews like this or job interviews or things like that. And so it's definitely a good skill to practice impromptu speaking. And is it nationwide? Is it kind of a nationwide thing? It's, it's global. They are like in, I don't know, like 150 countries or something like that. I mean, yeah. So they're not necessarily in every single place, but they're in a lot of places in, so I actually have to drive a little bit from where I currently live, but um, yeah, I guess check it out there. Definitely in a lot of places. Very cool. So I guess last question for the day before we wrap up is um, we're kind a little bit over midway through 2022. What, what are you excited about for the rest of the year? Is there, um, you're doing a lot of work in a lot of different kind of aspects of your career, but what, what's, uh, what's on the radar? Yeah, so I guess um, this additive process, doing continuing research in that, uh, getting some talks and papers out on, on that, and hopefully uh, some customers. Some other projects we're working on, we are supposed to be getting an um, additive-based process, actually related to a different kind of technology, uh, from the uh, so, SOCOM, the SoftWorks people, um, and then we're working on a current project. This, this isn't really related to the additive, it's related to casting side where we're you're, uh, testing a new material for body armor. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, if it works out, it'll be like a real improvement over current processing options. And you know, with everything going on in Ukraine, there's obviously a big need for, for that kind of thing, unfortunately. And so if people want to find out more information about kind of what you're doing, um, what's the website and will you be at kind of any upcoming trade shows or kind of what's the best way to, to, to find out more if people are interested in, in your work? Yeah, our website is um, schooledllc.com. So S-K-U-L-D-L-L-C.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, like you said. Um, yeah, I'm talking at... IMTS additive show here in that's in September. I think it's in Chicago, but yeah, my backyard. Yeah, (laughs) Um, 
I'm talking about that. And I guess that's the, the main thing. I think most of the, a lot of the additive shows have already, right? The big ones, AMO, Rapid, that were kind of in the past, already have happened for this year. Um, but I guess, yeah, come say hi to me at one of those if you're there too. Fantastic. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your time today and uh, look forward to seeing you in Chicago in a few, few weeks here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you.